Hi, this is Elliot Fisherman, and welcome to our latest podcast. And this will be a very interesting one. This will be based on some of the work we presented at RSNA 2007 on CT imaging of aortic grafts. And we're going to look at stent grafts in the thoracic aorta. And this was some work that was done with radiology and with our colleagues in vascular surgery, Dr. Rosenberg and Dr. Black. So what we did in the exhibit, and what I'll try to focus on, is sort of the state of the art in stent graft placement. Uh, stent graft placement has come a long way. It's being used more frequently. We're going to look at the type of pathology where stent grafts do have a great impact. We're going to look at how CT is used in determining what patients should get stent grafts and how this can be done in terms of preoperative planning as well as when patients already have their grafts, how we use CT following uh, these stent graft placements. We'll look at some of the complications and how to optimize detection with CT scanning. Now, reality is the literature on the subject is relatively sparse. Most of the articles on stent grafts tend to be within the abdominal region, you know, typical aortic stent grafts, and there have been a number of articles really looking at that. In the chest, it's less frequent. Uh, it's more of a challenge because of the type of dissections we see. It's been more of an issue in terms of patient selection. Now, typically in the thoracic aorta, uh, classic surgery is the uh, method of choice for evaluation of treating patients with dissections or aneurysms, those that need to be uh, treated surgically. Of course, uh, Surgery has its issues, complications from stroke to bleed, and not an insignificant recovery time. Typically, thoracic aneurysms are in older patients, though of course we know that patients with syndromes like Marfan's or Lois Dietz will have increased incidence of thoracic aneurysms, and those are commonly type A aneurysms or dissections. But typically, the population we think about in most cases is an older population where mortality can be up to 12% in elective cases and up to 40% in emergent cases. With the development of minimally invasive techniques such as endovascular stent placement, uh, the hope is, of course, that this morbidity and mortality rates would indeed decrease. Now, endovascular stent placement uses a percutaneous uh, technique uh, with a puncture in the groin rather than the classic invasive surgical techniques which typically necessitate cardiopulmonary bypass, medial stenotomy, and thoracotomy. Eliminating these more invasive surgical procedures potentially decreases morbidity and mortality and improves the patient's recovery time. And that's been shown not only in thoracic aorta, but in abdominal aorta as well. Uh, the principles that we use for abdominal aortic uh, stenting uh, really are moved into the chest is one way of thinking about it. Thoracic stent placement has by been primarily employed in patients who are poor surgical candidates or those who refuse traditional surgical repair. Common procedures uh, or pathology that's amenable to stent placement include aneurysms, aortic rupture, pseudoaneurysms, penetrating ulcer, certain congenital anomalies like coarctation, and of course, dissection. Technique for evaluation of the thoracic aorta, of course, is critical if you're going to do stent placement. Ideally, uh, we inject 4 cc's of contrast. We use Omnipeg 350 or Visipeg 320, depending on the patient's uh, creatinine levels. And we typically inject about 100 to 120 cc's. It's usually about a 25-second delay. In patients, we want to look at the ascending aorta. We'll use a gated technique. 
Gating is particularly ideal for looking at the aortic root. We get a good look at the valves. We get a good look at the coronary arteries. Uh, we occasionally will use a saline chaser, the sort of dual injection, as you do for coronary arteries, and that can indeed be very helpful as well. We'll use on our scanner the thinnest collimation. Uh, we'll use the 0.6 millimeter detectors, create 0.75 millimeter thick sections, and reconstruct at 0.5 millimeter intervals. We then create 3D maps. These 3D maps, including um, center uh, line views, are very critical in creating the exact uh, type of stent that will need to be placed. Uh, with the CT and geography on the 64-slice scanner, we create ideal high-quality volume data sets, isotropic resolution. We've spoken about that. Any plane or perspective, we can see uh, extensive details. So whether it's the branch vessels off the arch or some of the intercostals, we can see all of that very nicely. At Hopkins, we use in-space software running on our Leonardo workstation, and all of this is done interactively. We do use a combination not only of volume rendering, but also MIP, as well as interactive multiplanar reconstructions. And here's just um, an example showing you how we use the 3D imaging uh, with manipulation, showing this patient who had gunshot wounds and has active extravasation from the left vertebral artery. And you can see a range of views. Again, we do this uh, in real time, which makes it very nicely. And here's just using a lighting model and some variations in volume rendering to show the successful placement of uh, an endovascular stent. So again, uh, rendering indeed becomes very important. Now we mentioned uh, what cases are amenable. Well, one is penetrating ulcers. Penetrating ulcers are typically associated with atherosclerotic disease. They develop from erosion of atheromous plaques, penetrating the elastic lamina, and associated with intramural hematoma about 80% of the time. These ulcers can result in aneurysms or pseudoaneurysm formation, dissection, or rupture. The risk of rupture increases with the increasing size of the aorta at the level of the ulceration. On CT, ulcers appear as contrast-filled craters, which communicate with the lumen. Patients with atherosclerotic disease and ulcers often have other comorbidities, including hypertension, prior infarcts, and coronary artery disease, and so are really truly high surgical risk candidates. And here's just a nice example showing you upper sets of images of very small ulceration with what appears to be a small intramural hematoma. And there the patient is about five months later where the ulceration has increased. And uh, now you can see increase in the intramural hematoma. This, of course, would be the ideal patient for an endovascular stent. And indeed, that's what this patient had. Now you can see the stent position is very nice. The patient did have a endoleak, but this endoleak resolved over time. So a good, very nice example of pretreatment and post-treatment studies. Another case, intramural hematomas. Uh, one of the things we always comment on is if you want to see intramural hematomas, do non-contrast CT. You'll see the high density in the wall of the aorta. Now, intramural hematomas are produced by rupture of the vasovasorum, resulting in hemorrhage in the wall of the aorta in the absence of an intimal tear. Patients often present with chest pain or interscapular pain, very similar to classic dissection. On non-contrast CT, the intramural hematoma appears to be of high density in the wall of the aorta and may displace intimal calcification medially. 
The cost is variable. Uh, in many patients, they might be treated conservatively. Others progress to aneurysm, pseudoaneurysm, or dissection. And you can see in this case, the patient has a small ulcer. Very nice example of an intramural hematoma. Again, there's a contrast enhanced scan, but you see the intramural hematoma. You see its high density. And you can see on this uh, next set of examples, uh, when you had the non-contrast CT, how much more obvious that intramural hematoma is. Again, just some views showing you the extent of the aneurysm and the extent of the intramural hematoma. Patients with thoracic dissections, and again, dissections we all know result from tears in the intima, allowing blood to flow between the layers and creating a flap between the true lumen and false lumen. Uh, dissection is most commonly associated with hypertension or vasculitis or trauma. And again, the classic finding is two lumens separated by a flap. And this flap is seen in about 70% of cases. Uh, we particularly see the flap well with 64 slice CT scanning. It allows us to see the extent of the flap. And you can see why these cases would be ideal for endovascular stenting. Now, besides atherosclerotic disease, other etiologies, cystic medial necrosis, as in Marfan's, trauma patients, aortitis, are all possibilities. And again, whether the patient has a true aneurysm or a false aneurysm, uh, these would be ideal patients potentially for doing uh, endovascular stenting. And here's a good example of a bilobe descending thoracic aortic aneurysm. Again, the question is, where is the subclavian? What type of coverage do you need? Or here's another patient with a very large aortic aneurysm. Now, another application is to uh, trauma patients. Now, trauma patients should be ideal because, again, it's the middle of the night. It's an emergency situation. Those are really where an endovascular stent would do very well. Now, acute traumatic aortic injury typically results from deceleration injuries. They can occur with penetrating trauma, such as stab wounds or gunshot wounds. Now, the truth is, the majority of patients will die prior to reaching the hospital, and the ones who make it to the hospital, you'll typically see, as in this case, active extravasation. It's a surgical emergency. Patients who survive without treatment can develop a chronic pseudoaneurysm with acute post-traumatic injury to the aorta. Patients may be too unstable for surgical repair, and so less invasive therapy would be ideal. And here's a case, patient with gunshot wound, you can see the aorta, you see the mediastinal hematoma, you see the contrast extravasation, um, the patient has very nice bovine anatomy, uh, angiography revealed uh, rupture of the aortic arch between the left vertebral and subclavian arteries, and you can see the extravasation nicely on CT, and this patient went for endovascular stenting, and you can see that very nicely in this view. You can see the bullet still remains in the mediastinum. Um, here's another patient with a pseudoaneurysm. Uh, again, pseudoaneurysms like this would truly be ideal for an endovascular stent to bypass the pseudoaneurysm. Coarctation, uh, coarctation of the aorta is another good application. Typically, patients present at a young age, but others will present at an older age. Patients present with right arm hypertension and normal to low blood pressure in the legs. A CT nicely will show coarctation, and then we could use the measurements from the CT angiogram to define whether or not the patient can get an endovascular stent and how large a stent or how long a stent would need to be placed. Now, in terms of 
uh, pre-stent assessment. There are a number of different software packages that are now being made available that allow us to take a very nice look at endovascular stents. Uh, key things, of course, is how is aorta look in terms of the length of the stent that would need to be placed. Is it too tortuous? Can you get approach? We also need precise measurements of the size of aortic pathology, including diameter and length for endovascular stent design and placement. Factors to be considered are involvement of uh, uh, structures off the arch or mesenteric vessels. Typically a sonometer or more of normal aortic wall adjacent to pathology that does not involve a major adjacent branch vessel is necessary for stent placement. Other criteria include a 40 to 42 millimeter or small diameter of the proximal and distal neck, 9 millimeters or small diameter of the femoral or iliac arteries, and no severe aortoiliac tortuosity. Up to 15% oversizing of stent grafts is optimal to prevent stent migration and optimal sealing to the aortic wall. And here's just our center line measurements, which allow us to get very good detail. You can see the patient's ulceration. You can see the center line. So just a very, very nice uh, example of how we use tools to get better measurements. Now, in terms of follow-up, once patients have have stents placed, uh, we can look for complications position or malposition. We can look for the presence of endoleak. And again, uh, we can follow up the native aneurysm to see if it is increasing or decreasing in size. So let's look at some examples. Now, in terms of e efficacy, MDCT assesses procedure efficacy by ensuring complete seal of the pathology as evidenced by exclusion of flow from the offending lesion. In patients with aortic dissection, there should be no flow into the false lumen. With time, this lumen may become imperceptible in cases of dissection. Post-end placement, uh, uh, aortic sac should also lack flow outside the confines of the stent and may eventually thrombose. Aneurysms will become smaller typically with time, though others may remain unchanged. They surely shouldn't get la larger. Traumatic rupture should have complete seal by the end of stent as evidenced by no contrast extravasation outside the aortic confines with interval resolution of any or any surrounding hematoma of blood will typically resolve over time. Coarctation patients should be assessed to assure lumen patency and assess for evidence of restenosis. And again, that's very nicely done by 3D mapping. And just some examples. Here's a nice example of an endovascular stent, axial images, as well as a patient with 3D images showing very nice position of the endovascular stent with no evidence of endoleak. Here's a patient with a very nice example of a stent in place for treatment of a coarctation of the aorta. A 3D imaging works very nicely in this example. Here's another case of an 82-year-old with a uh, atherosclerotic uh, thoracic abdominal aorta. Again, uh, the stent's in proper position with axial measurements showing slight uh, decrease in the extent of the aneurysm over time. Again, very nice example of pre and post-end placement. And here's just a case I showed you in part before for the pre-op planning, and now I'm showing you the endovascular stent. Again, good position, patent, and no leaks. Again, the importance of using a combination of different rendering techniques. Now, what about complications? Let's just speak about that in a little bit more detail. Endoleaks are not uncommon. They often will resolve over time. 
Uh, potential complications of stents beyond endo leaks include migration, dissection, pseudoaneurysm formation, aortic perforation, kinking, thrombosis, and overstenting of vital branch vessels. Now, endoleaks are defined as the persistence of blood flow outside the lumen of the graft, but within an aneurysmal sac or the adjacent vascular segment being treated by the graft. Endoleaks are essential to detect as they may lead to failure of treatment and potentially are fatal as they allow continued flow into the region of pathology. To best define and detect and not be confused and not overcall the presence of a leak, non-contrast scans are typically necessary. Post-contrast scans or delayed scans are also necessary to uh, uh, detect any small amounts of bleeding that may only occur late in the game. Leaks can occur in the immediately post-op period and develop as a late complication and detected over longer-term follow-up. Given the ongoing degenerative nature of atherosclerosis, Natural progression of disease progress can contribute to further dilatation of the aorta, producing late endoleaks. Leaking can occur in either end of the stent attachment site, be it proximal or distal. A collateral vessel into the aneurysm sac but outside the stent may also be a cause, or by failure of a portion of the stent, leaving a hole in the stent. So that's actually graft failure. Type 4 endoleaks are a diagnosis of exclusion and are thought to be caused by graft wall porosity, and those are indeed very uncommon. Endoleaks can occur in any patient, but those with complex anatomy and short angulated aneurysmal necks are more prone to type 1 endoleaks due to the higher difficulty of obtaining a full seal with the stent. And here's an example, non-contrast early and late phase imaging, and on the later phase imaging, about 60 seconds out, the endoleak is much more obvious. Or in this set of images, again, uh, you can see very nicely the presence of the endoleak, and on the 3D map, you can show its extent. Now, in terms of migration, a malpositioned uh, stent or one that has migrated is important to detect. Uh, malpositioning often results from elevated blood pressure during stent deployment. Uh, this can also happen when the stent is being uh, placed across an angulated segment. In either case, the primary pathology may not be appropriately treated, therefore. In addition, malpositioning or stent migration can result in uh, inadvertent coverage of important branch vessels, such as the left subclavian or celiac artery, depending on the situation, resulting in ischemia or strokes. And again, a comparison films are necessary for detecting small migration. And here's a good example of a stent with occlusion of the left subclavian artery. So again, the importance of looking at stent migration. I mentioned pseudoaneurysms in the sections. Patients may have an appropriately placed stent. However, because many of these patients have a significantly diseased aortic wall, can develop a pseudoaneurysm near the site of endostent. Additionally, while stents are used to treat dissection, they also can produce dissection because of injury to adjacent uh, vessel wall. Aortic perforation is uncommon. It can occur at the time of stent placement or as a later complication due to erosion of the aortic wall by the struts of the stent. Perforation is evidenced on CT as a rapidly enlarging hematoma or hemothorax. A perforation can result in fistula formation and can result in sudden death with uh, rupture. And here's just a good example of a patient with a uh, stent placement you can see very nicely this uh, uh, focal dissection 
which occurs at the proximal margin of the stent. So again, a very nice example showing you that in coronal and 3D mapping. So concluding then, endovascular stents are playing a more important role, whether it's atherosclerotic disease, whether it's trauma, whether it's coarctation, or any of the potential indications for doing surgery. The results are showing a lower mortality, lower morbidity, uh, and so really are going to play a major role as new stents are developed, as better deployment develops. I think it's a very exciting area and one that radiology is involved with both in the uh, pre-planning as well as in follow-up. And here is a series of different references that if you're interested may be helpful for you. And with that, let me thank you for your time and have a nice day.